Uh, we are in a series entitled The End of the World According to Jesus, which is really a study of Matthew 24 and Matthew 25. That's, we wanted to study a gospel, and we said, let's study this portion of the gospel. And throughout the whole 24 and 25, Christ is talking about uh, the day and the hour of his coming. And so far, he has been describing what it would be like, things we might expect to see. This morning, it's a pivot. He's hinging now towards how we ought to prepare. So more from what our anticipation should be of what it would look like to our preparation for when it actually happens. That's, that's where we are. And there's going to be a spirit that comes out of the scriptures this morning uh, regarding be alert, be awake, be ready. Be alert. And it got me thinking... Um, Even now, you know, the Cold War has been gone for some time now. I guess it went away in the 90s. But do you know that even now, this very day, we have people in holes in the ground in the Midwest with nuclear missiles sitting alert? I mean, Effie Warren, all these places, there's missile silos at this very moment with people in them sitting alert for something that you and I don't think will happen. Now, in the 70s, maybe people thought it would happen. Maybe in the 80s or the 60s, we thought it would happen. But now, I don't think anyone this morning woke up saying, oh, I hope today is not the day where there's a thermonuclear war. I don't know if anyone's even had a... I don't even know if I'm saying it right. Thermonuclear, is that right? I don't even know if we've had a nuclear thought in a month, two months, half a year... You might not have even have known we had missile silos in the Midwest. They've been there. Sitting alert for something that we don't think will happen. When I was stationed in Afghanistan, we sat alert for the ground uh, forces. In Afghanistan, the way the military strategy is, many of the ground forces are isolated and very limited in their firepower. Small enclaves, sometimes as small as 18 or so guys. And and so... There are situations where if there was a strategic effort made against their, uh, their base of operations, they might be overwhelmed. So what they did is they, they went to air, the Air Force, and we've been put on 30-minute alert. We sit 30-minute alert for these operating bases, which means that if a crisis hit, they could call in, and there'd be a big microphone. There's a big microphone on the base, and it would say something like, Apollo, Apollo, Apollo. And you'd jump, you'd jump up, and you would be airborne in 30 minutes or less. That was the goal of the contract. And we would sit 30-minute alert. I have, we've at times sat airborne alert. When things are so imminent, you just fly around waiting. Uh, during the Cold War, there's people who sat alert sitting in the cockpit waiting so they could be airborne in five minutes. I set night shift uh, alert. So every 5 p.m. to 5 a.m., me and my buddy would set alert. And you'd wake up, or you'd wake up at dinner, but then you'd go out and you would uh, pre-flight the aircraft You'd fire the engines up, get all the systems online, make sure everything in the airplane worked just in case it happened, right? And then you would turn it all off. And you'd put your helmet in the right spot and 
you'd arrange the cockpit just as though you were about to hop in and leave. You'd put your night vision goggles, get them all focused and set, and you'd set them in the right spot, and you'd kind of make your nest, so to speak. You'd build your nest, then you'd climb back down the ladder, and you'd take off your harness and your survival vest, and you'd hang it on the ladder. You'd leave your G-suit on, because if you were gaining weight, sometimes it takes a little while to get that thing on. So you'd, 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 12 hours, you'd sit in your flight suit and your G-suit, and you'd go back to the squadron, which was just a hop, skip, and a jump away from the flight line, and you'd get your intel brief and your weather brief, and you'd compute your takeoff and landing data, all as though you were going to fly tonight. And then you'd sit. You'd email. You'd play Wolfenstein. Uh, it was Christmas, so you'd write a letter, feel lonely. Um, hang out, watch one of your six movies again. Waiting. Everyone else is asleep, but you. You're ready. That was the idea. 30 minutes, we'll be airborne. And then on the way there, they, you know, they pipe in on the radio. This is where you're, you know, you take off with kind of takeoff point west. You know, and then they feed in from everybody, and you go and you do what you can. But you, you were there in case something happened. That's what it means to be on alert. God wants us to be alert, not asleep. Here's what he says in verse 36. He's changing the subject. He's leaving what's it going to look like to how we ought to be. And he says this, this sentence, but concerning the day and the hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. We always want to know when. Jesus' statement here almost distracts us. He's trying to separate us from the stop asking when. Stop worrying about when. You don't know. Jesus even says, in a kind of a mysterious way, I don't even know. He self-limited him himself when he became a man. So there's, I don't think there's, it's overly mysterious here. But it's almost though, stop asking. You know when you buy your child a Christmas present and you know what it is? And they're like, what did you get me? You say, I'm not going to tell you. It's a game, isn't it? It's a game. And you, I'm not going to tell you, ah, it's a game, I see it. And you're wondering, how do they do that? How do they do that? And you're like, I'm not telling. Is it the, the football game I wanted? I'm serious, I'm not. It is the football. Which one did you get? You know how it is? Jesus is separating us from this occupation. I don't even know, he says. Kill it. It's not important. But the reason we want to know when, the reason we have when all up in our minds is because if we knew when, then we would get ready. Just like your house. If you knew you were having guests come over, you'd clean. It's messy now. I mean, comparatively, you know, you clean if you... The Lord is saying, when I come, I'm going to see your house the way it is the way it really is. I mean, your spiritual house, this house. He's saying, I'm not telling you when because then you would make your house presentable, not as it really is. Okay, I, that's the purpose, I think, with 
the way Christ staves off the wind question. Because there's something much more important to win with relation to the Lord, and that's who are we and how will we be when he comes? Which you'll see here. He's going to begin to talk to that question. So look at 37. There's going to be three images this morning. Uh, We're going to look at the first one here. We're just going to kind of walk through the text together. 37, it says, For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be left in a field, and one will be taken, and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken, and one left. Therefore stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. I don't want to miss the obvious. The first is, and if you've traveled along with the Lord for a long enough time, you may, have, you may just assume the obvious, but I want to say it, and that is the Lord is coming again. The Lord is coming again. The, the message, the, I'm overgeneralizing, but the practical message that we receive outside the walls of faith it, that we are culturally evolving that we are not necessarily heading towards any kind of terminal, but that we're just, it's hard to even talk about moving in a direction because it's so naturalistic and random, but that mankind, for whatever time it is here, is just meandering along in a development, a kind of abstract developmental way towards the next thing, and there's real no purpose in it. That's absolutely anti-Christian and anti-biblical. God started this. And he's ending it. Okay, that is, it's kind of, it's obvious for the text, but certainly if there's, if there's ears or spirits here who are on the fringe of the faith, I, w- I want to say it's not just here, man, it's all through the, Genesis 1 says, in the beginning God created. And Revelation says, behold, I'm coming again, I'm making everything new. It's a theme of our scripture. But in that theme, this first image that Jesus gets, and we should not miss this, is it will be like the days of Noah. I think that's not a good thing. Noah. When Jesus talks about his return, he selects the most extreme moment of earthly judgment in the Bible. And says, it'll be like that. Now, to be clear, he's talking specifically here about the surprise. But we shouldn't miss the fact that he selected that as his example. But what he's saying is, in the time of Noah, nobody, nobody, the regular people did not have a tip-off that they should start building a boat. They were coming and going, doing their daily sort of things. It was the righteous one who was prepared. That's, we should feel that coming off the text. The righteous Noah was the one 
who was ready and was in the boat, who was attentive to the Lord, who was responsive to the Lord, had a relationship with the Lord. That wakefulness, that's, are you awake in your faith? Are you responsive to the Lord? That is the means by which eight people in total were saved when the rain came. Everyone else was asleep in the spirit, you might think, not wakeful before the Lord. Jesus says, that's how it's going to be. Stay awake. That's how the teaching ends in 42. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. At one level, I think that's easier said than done. So what does it mean to stay awake? How do you stay awake? I, I think, actually, the way that Scripture's written, I think the Lord matures this idea as he goes along. And so the second image helps refine this first teaching. He continues in 43, if you'll look. He says, but know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. So he says, be awake. In this one, he says, be ready. And the image he gets is the master of a home. The master of the home anticipates a thief coming, and he talks about being awake. What are the sorts of things, if you just think, that you would do if you knew someone had their eye, they were casing the joint, they were driving by and checking out your house? What would you do? Make sure the doors are locked, the windows are locked. If you had a garage, you'd put your car in it and close the door. Whether or not you had an alarm system, you'd get one of those signs and put them in the end of your driveway, right? See how that goes? Get a big dog with a barky voice. Those are the sorts of things you would do if you knew there was an imminent threat to the return of this thief. Jesus is saying, live like I might come today. That's what it means to be ready. What would you do if you knew the Lord was coming? Do it. He gives one more image. And we'll spend a little more time in this image. I'm going to read 45 through 51, read the whole image, then we'll back up and we'll kind of walk through it together. Uh, Here's the parable. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find doing so when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour when he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping 
and gnashing of teeth. Now, this is a parable, which means the question, parables typically um, presume you ask the question of yourself. Parables are kind of told to get to a question for you. So the question, there's not two servants here. There's two kinds of us servant. The question is, which servant are you? Okay, that's the, the goal. So which servant are you? There's a first servant who's a faithful and wise servant, and there's a second servant who's a wicked servant. But in 45, we see there is this faithful servant, faithful and wise. And, and how do we understand he's wise? It says, uh, blessed is that servant in 46 whom his master will find doing so when he comes. So the, the, the idea that we're supposed to understand is the master is leaving. He selects a servant to stand in his place while he's gone. So he places, he gives that servant authority and responsibility to care for the other servants while he's gone. He's standing in the place. For, church, for a church that appreciates itself as the body of Christ, this should have an acute, we should have acute awareness for what's being said here. For the master is away, and his servant is standing in the place of the master. And with the good and faithful servant, the reason he's blessed is when the master comes home, he sees that the servant has governed the home in a way that is consistent with the way the master would have governed. There's a consistency of the way the master leads, the servant leads. The way the master cares, the servant cares. The way the master thinks, the servant thinks. Blessed is he, it says. In fact, he's rewarded. He's given greater responsibility, greater, greater stewardship. The Lord invites him, the, his Lord invites him deeper into the estate. But then we get to 48. And there's a wicked servant now. Here's the other kind of servant. And this one reasons to himself when the master's gone. He says, my master is delayed. He's not coming back for a while. You see, the second servant, first of all, he has a disbelief in the imminent return of his master. That's mistake number one, right? Christ is saying, that's the wrong way to think about me. But that servant begins to presuppose that, man, the the master's been gone a long time, maybe almost 2,000 years. He's not coming back anytime soon. If he's coming back at all, he's not coming back under my watch. That's the spirit in this, in this wicked servant. Is he's, it's out of sight, out of mind. It's when the cat's away, the mice will play. It's this idea of when the master's gone, so is his lordship. So is his authority. So is, is there's been a divorce or a disconnection between the influence of the master and the servant. The servant begins to think about himself. He begins to beat his fellow servants, 49. He eats and drinks with drunkards. 
So he's standing in the place of the master, right? The master's gone. He's a steward now, standing in the place of his master. He's been endowed with authority and responsibility, but he rejects the responsibility and he holds on to the authority. That's what makes him abusive. In other words, he takes what the Lord had given him and he twists it around to benefit himself. That's the picture here. Is that he's become the object of his own celebration. He abuses people and uses people to celebrate himself. This is his time, you might think, for the servant. This is his time, his time in the sun, his chance. You know, this life, is, is this life your time? That's a worthy question, I think, for the church, the members of the church to conceive and think about is how. Maybe it's better to say this how because rarely we black and white. We, so much of our life is blah. How, if you were trying to pull your life and look at it, how are you maybe co-opting the things the Lord has given you for you. What is he, you not think he's coming back? Or do you not think he gave it to you? He made you. It comes from him. He's given it to you. And he's coming back. Where? Where in our lives, do we, you know, whether it's, you know, the way we don't treat our spouse with respect and dignity, it's the way we don't treat our coworkers, our friends. It's interesting, it's all about people here, it's abusive people. How, how, how if you look at the way, you use or shepherd people. It might help you know who you are here. And then the master says he's going to come back when he won't expect. This is the challenge. This is the real challenge is there really is only one possible way that a servant can, for the long term, remain faithful to a a master who's departed. There's only one way that it can happen. Every other permutation or strategy or approach will fail with exhaustion or just emptiness. There's only one way that as a servant with a master who's gone for a long time, you can stay faithful. And that is if you actually believe in the way that the master is. You have to agree with him. I'm saying the, the Lord has a way about him. A way of doing things. A way of caring for people. A way of loving people. A way of sacrificing himself for their good. An attentive way. A way that is always, always lovingly enslaved to truth and in love with people. 
He has a way about him. There's only one way for us to steward his estate while he's gone into his return. There's only one way on the long term for us to do that, and that's if we actually agree with him. What I mean to say is, is if you inside have a spirit of agreement with who the Lord is, that's the only way you're going to stay faithful in the long term. Otherwise, you'll get selfish, tired, and you'll take something for yourself. It is the only way. For us, in our minds, to have the same, to become like him, that when the way he does things is the way we would do things. The rules, if we can call them that, rules, his description of reality matches our description of reality. That's a better way to talk about rules. Rules are just statements of universal truth. That's all it is. So when he says, don't do that, we go, I agree. I'm not saying we're always obedient to it. I'm not saying we're strong in faith. I'm saying we're longing for his likeness. The faith comes along in it. We see who he is and we want to be that way. That means when he's gone and we wake up and we put our feet on the floor, our operating system works like his operating system. And we govern and we shepherd and we steward and we treat people like, roundabout like he would. Oh, man, what do you think of the rules? Do the rules protect? These are just ways to think about it. Are, are you becoming like the master? Or are you squirming under him and then you like it when he's gone? What do you think of the rules? That's a great, I think it's a great litmus test for you. When you hear the Lord say, this is how it is, this is how it is. Do you go, yeah, it's hard for me to be that way, but my spirit agrees with it. In other words, do the laws and statutes and teachings of God do they resonate with you as yes, they're for my good, or do they resonate with you as dang it? I would, uh, you know, I would have fun Friday night, but I got all these dumb rules. Or do they resonate with you? Is the wall of the city there to protect you, or are you trapped in the city? It's a great way of knowing what kind of servant you are. I mean, the reality is, is this second servant is not a servant. He's a pretender. There's a pretense here. He has always been a master. He's a master in sheep's clothing. He's his own master, and all that needed is the, the real master needed to go away for him to stretch out uh, and take over. Has his own rules. Do you have a spirit of ownership in the gospel like... Christ does. This is, this is the difference. This is who God, God wants to, this is who God is calling. Okay, this is what God's trying to call out of each and every one of us. Is a spirit that has, participates and is in agreement with who he is and what he's done so that he can not be here and have us magnify his presence to the world. This is why, by the way, just here's a negative example, why uh, take your classic, uh, you know, movie babysitter, the 16-year-old gum chewer texting with one earpiece in while you talk to her. 
You know, and you're like, and they need to be in bed. Uh-huh, uh-huh. You know, and you're like, and what about the dog? I got it, I got it. And you, they won't look at you, and you know they're like already frustrated with you, frustrated with you, and they just want you gone, right? They just want you out. Would you leave your children with that babysitter for a long time, like six months? No. Because you'd come back and they'd look like that. This is, this is the, the Lord is looking, this is, just to you appreciate, the Lord is looking for stewards who will faithfully stand in his place, who have ownership about the things he cares about. You as parents can immediately appreciate those of you, well, all of us can, you don't even have to be a parent. You could be a kid because you'd be like, I like that babysitter. She never makes us do anything. You, you could celebrate it from the inverse. That there's this truth that the Lord is looking for those who are consistent, who have ownership. If you're a business owner and you want to go on a long vacation, you want to go to Europe and enjoy yourself with your, with your spouse and your kids on a long vacation, and, and, and someone says, why don't you go? And you say, well, you know, I, have the, I, I own this business. They say, well, just leave it with the daytime manager. No. I'm the only one who has ownership. Right? It's one thing in having been serviced by the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's another thing in having ownership in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's one thing to appreciate what God's done for you. It's another thing to have an increasing spirit of likeness with him, a spirit of agreement that says, I am called to be like him. That is the good servant. The wicked servant is subject to judgment. And I will say this, and this is important in this grand conversation of the end of the world, right? And it's really just a snazzy title. For the person who has a spirit of agreement with the Lord, they never need to be worried or fixated or wrapped around the axle about the return of Christ. Never. Because they are in their new nature doing the very things that they ought to be doing for when the Christ might return. That's the point. Someone who shares the likeness of Jesus and is becoming like Christ and has a relationship with Christ, there's nothing to worry about. On this grand conversation of when is Jesus coming again, the thought is, if I continue to do what I'm doing now out of a spirit of agreement with the Father, then when he comes, he'll find me doing that. Everyone else should be worried. And I mean everyone else should be worried. Because he's going to come when you're not expecting. It'll be like the days of Noah. You'll see that guy building a strange boat. And then drops will hit your shoulder. God is coming to meet who you are right now. Ever present. Who are you now? That's who's going to meet the Lord. Whatever you are now, and whatever that now is, right, as you grow in life, that's what the Lord is going to find. Either that person is becoming like Christ, or that person is enjoying their time. This is, you only got one life to live. You got to live it up. God gave you this life. 
and he's coming. Here's the punishment or the judgment. So the master comes when he doesn't expect 51. Oh, these words are so harsh. They're so sharp. I'm assuming you don't like to hear them. That he will come and will cut him in pieces and will put him with hypocrites. In that place there will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Remember, this is about the end. This is the end. He's saying when Jesus comes, there is the great judgment, right? Weeping and gnashing of teeth is a phrase. You can substitute hell for that phrase. This is a judgment time. In other words, this life that has been endowed to us is a time of testing to see who we are. And Christ will come again and reward us. We will receive the due recompense for who we are. I sometimes wonder, why are these words so sharp, like cut to pieces? And I've... This is my current reasoning. Because, and I'm speaking for myself as, as well, the church is so scared to talk about judgment that we would file these teachings down to nothing if they weren't this sharp. And we would just bald them off, round them out, and just say, just be a good person. There's something in us that just longs to say that. Yeah, it'll all work out. The true message is Jesus Christ has come to save you and he will save all who call on him and it will not work out for anyone else. That's the true message. That's the sharp message. That, and it's not as though God doesn't like humanity. God loves humanity. God loved the world that he sent his perfect and only son to the earth who suffered and died for your sins and my sins and who's willingly given his life for the sins of the whole world, if the whole world were to call on him. That is the Lord who's left for a moment and will return. That's the Lord who has the right of judgment to say, what have you done? Who are you? Because God's coming to who you are. That's the question. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we want to be alert, but not, not alert in a way of scouring the scriptures to see when you're coming. Lord, we want to be alert in a way where our spirit is ready for action, like it says in Peter. that were made for you. Watchful and ready to be used, to be consistent, to live a life for you, Lord. Help us to be those kinds of people, people who have grown to know you. And Lord, I do pray this word hypocrites means he's, oh, he must have religious people in mind. means this question must be keenly for us. Lord, I do, I do ask you to expose in us these places where our lives are not consistent with you, where we're not being good stewards while in your absence. In fact, where other people may be accumulating evidence as to why they will not worship you because of our wrong behavior. 
Forgive us of that, Lord. Make us sensitive. Make us very sensitive, Lord, to the fact that your absent reputation is built in many ways by the behavior of the church. Lord, I pray that you would give us a spirit of agreement with you. Even today, Lord, if there's people here who are curious about you, maybe cynical about the church, curious about you, Lord, do, do the work that only you can do of, of making them curious about you, calling them to yourself, Lord. We want them to be like you, not like us, but like you. Uh, that's what we want, Lord. So that when you come, you'd find us uh, steady at the wheel, doing the things you, by nature, would have been doing. That would make us good and faithful. Lord, if there's someone here who has been on the margins of the faith, I pray they might be attracted towards you, even maybe spurred towards you by the notion of your return. Your right as king to judge. Your role as author of creation to finish the story. Lord, help us to see everything we've been given, our possessions, our children, our time as yours, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.